Open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2 as we're going through a very specific portion of Peter's letter in that he is addressing this issue of Christians and how they should submit to various portions of the society that they live in. We saw that last time by talking about Christians going before government and how that submission is to be seen. And today, we see this with earthly masters, and we see it in verse 18. So it's 1 Peter 2, verse 18 through 20. Peter writes, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. We come to this portion this morning that is so amazingly counterintuitive to most of us. It strikes so firmly against the grain of our most coveted principles of the American culture. Even to hear those words that I just read to you as I read them, for some, it's almost like nails of a rebellious child going down a school board and on the blackboard making their way into our ears. Even at first glance, it seems when we see this that these words hold within them a kind of an obvious interpretation. I don't think anybody's going to be baffled. But that interpretation ignites our firmest resistance to the teachings. We resist their ideology concerning the self. We resist the ideology concerning what is fair and what is just. We resist the insistence that degradation might be held in a favorable place in the heart of God. All of that strikes us at the very core because it runs, again, counterintuitive to what we understand as American dreamers to be our most fundamental rights. To have the great apostle Peter here in the second chapter of his book referred to servants, or better yet in the Greek, house slaves, without a parenthesis of explanation to kind of define this defamatory kind of term shocks us. To have scripture insist that submission to earthly masters is required of all Christians, even when they are perverse and crooked, it seems almost a perversion in and of itself. To hear the Bible tell us that what we are to do when we see suffering in a godly response to that suffering and the suffering that actually pleases God is to submit to that makes us shake our heads and kind of wonder why. Why would this be? Why would the writers of Scripture seem determined to turn Christianity into a religion of doormats and weaklings? And yet, clearly, this is what Scripture is telling us. Clearly, this is what the Apostle Peter is exhorting us. He exhorts slaves to submit to their masters, even if they are unscrupulous, dishonest, unjust, cruel, and different, difficult to please. And Peter insists that Christian slaves are to be obedient to all masters, regardless of their personal characteristics, and that regardless of their low social standing, they were not so much to escape their circumstances, but to suffer underneath those circumstances with the knowledge that this kind of endurance of pain received God's stamp of approval. 
He doesn't redefine the terms. He doesn't redefine their earthly vocation, or he doesn't redirect them into a station of life that kind of better fits their new position in Christ. He just merely asserts so easily the same rules apply to us. He says that salvation has not redefined their slavery, but rather it has redefined their service. And so he motivates them with the idea that favor or grace from God comes to them from God in exchange for their faithfulness to his command to suffer for what is right. His premise being that to receive favor from God is more beneficial than sinning in rebellion. Does that make sense? To receive favor from God is more beneficial than sinning in rebellion. This is what he implies, satisfies the slave. The slave is satisfied when they serve God. And this is because he uses this word, Okintas, it's house slave. It's a word that's synonymous with doulos, which is slave that we have in the New Testament in verse 16. But it's a more common word for slave. It's a different word. It's been translated here servant because it refers to more those slaves who worked in the household than the field. So rather than having a term that's been kind of dumbed down, this term actually is applied to the relationship that is stronger than servant but weaker than slave. It is a semi-employee, an employer kind of connection, if you will. So this is the teaching before us this morning. We're going to wrap our eyes around it and our ears around it, and hopefully our hearts as well. Slaves must apply the principles of holy living to their situation, having righteous reactions, living as Christians in spite of the strong temptation to break free from their humble circumstances. And even they are slandered. Even if we are slandered by those despots, they are to not rebel, but to persevere for the sake of evoking a response of favor from God because they live in daily awareness of what would please him. So we are commanded to go against all natural impulses. We are commanded to go against the natural ethics of our culture to to censor the burning anger and impulse of retaliation which is evoked by this injustice so that the Christian might show the world that Christ is the ruler of their lives. And these holy reactions and their resistance to it, our resistance to these holy reactions, is what we're going to examine today. And I have titled this sermon, The Satisfied Slave, because that's what the title invokes for us and the irony that Peter is driving at. A slave, one who is bound to the whims of another, finding satisfaction in his slavery, in her slavery. How can that be? Here in the text this morning, and again, I apologize for my voice. We were at homecoming, and I just lost it. So uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, Tommy, by the way, I don't know if you guys, some of you know, he got king at homecoming. So, uh, yeah, he's my son. And, uh, <laughs> but I kind of lost it. So it's, okay, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's laryngitis due to uh, parenting, um, but in a good way, in a good way, <laughs> joyful. It's a sports injury. In this text, what we have are the implications that a slave who submits, who does so because his or her desire to receive God's grace gift is more important than their pain. More important than their pain. That's what it is to be a slave. We'll be a slave that is supernaturally satisfied beyond anything that we could ask or think. And this, my assertion this morning, that we resist at a very fundamental level 
We resist by doing so. We resist the level in resisting this command of profound joy that comes from enduring obedience. When we resist this, we resist something that prevents us from the joy that God would grant us. And I want you to examine with me, if you're taking notes, three areas of resistance, three areas of resistance found in this text that robs us of possessing full satisfaction in Christ. Three areas of spiritual resistance, if you will, that must be addressed and broken before we can enjoy God's favor. This is how to become a satisfied slave. And before we look at these points, let me just read something from C.S. Lewis. He has a book called The Problem of Pain, and I don't know if you've ever read it, but there is a portion in this book that really sets the stage for what I think is the cause of our resistance to these kind of things. This is Lewis's way of describing the reason God uses pain and reactions to his teaching in the way that we do. It's a little bit long, but I think it's helpful. Lewis writes, my own experience is something like this. I am progressing along the path of life in my ordinary, contented, fallen, and godless condition, absorbed in a merry meeting with my friends for the morrow or a bit of work that tickles my vanity today, a holiday or a new book, when suddenly a stab of abdominal pain that threatens serious illness or a headline in the newspapers that threatens us with all destruction sends this whole pack of cards tumbling down. At first, I am overwhelmed. And all of my little happinesses look like broken toys. Then slowly and reluctantly, bit by bit, I try to bring myself into the frame of mind that I should be at all times. I remind myself that all these toys were never intended to possess my heart, that my true good is in another world, and my only real treasure is Christ. And perhaps by God's grace, I succeed, and for a day or two, become a creature consciously dependent on God and drawing its strength from the right source. But the moment the threat is withdrawn, my whole nature leaps back to the toys. I am even anxious, God forgive me, to banish from my mind the only thing that supported me under the threat because it is now associated with the misery of those few days. Thus, the terrible necessity of tribulation is only too clear. God has had me but for 48 hours, and then only by a dint of taking everything else away from me. Let him, God, but take a sword for a moment, and I behave like a puppy when the heated bath is over. I shake myself as dry as I can, and I race off to reacquire my comfortable dirtiness, if not in the nearest manure heap, or at least in the nearest flower bed. And that is why tribulations cannot cease until God either sees us remade or sees that our remaking is now hopeless, end quote. Lewis always has a way of expressing thoughts that few people can articulate. There is a way that God uses injustice and the misery of suffering to pry us from everything that we hold dear in this life and to produce in us a humility that can accept his ways as best. And when we see that his way is best, we become open to receiving a joy that in and of itself becomes a longing for more deeply desirable than any other satisfaction on earth, even if it's a type of unhappiness or grief, yet it is a kind that we want because it's produced from him, by him, and for him. 
What truly fills our hearts with joy and satisfaction? What is it that really enlarges our hearts? It is, as Lewis said, when Christ becomes our treasure. When Christ becomes our treasure. But to treasure him and his ways, we have to be broken to our resistance of his teachings. We must address these issues that rob us of his glory. It's, if satisfaction is to come in the Christian life, we must overcome our own resistance is the point. So let's look at the first area. Let's look at this first area of resistance that these verses really confront, and that is, number one, our definition of slaves, our definition of slaves. We resist in the core of our being the entire idea of slavery, its concept, its allowance, everything about it. And yet, verse 16 of this text Peter calls the doulos slaves of God, but use it as bond slaves. The true word there is doulos, slaves of God. He speaks to those in the first century that were physically slaves and to owners, and that doesn't oppose the institution itself, but speaks of a given acceptable truth, and we resist it. There are reasons, of course, we as Americans resist the idea of slavery, and that is because, first and foremost, our nation's history with slavery. We are traumatized and overwhelmed when we are taught of the practice of slavery that existed in our country a hundred and so many years ago. There's a poem to kind of express this by Francis Ellen Watkins Harper. It's called The Slave Auction, and I want to read a portion of it to you to kind of understand why we resist this idea. The sale began, young girls were there, defenseless in their wretchedness, who stifled sobs of deep despair revealed their anguish and distress. And mothers stood with streaming eyes and saw their dearest children sold. Unheeded rose their bitter cries while tyrants battered them for gold. And woman with her love and truth for those in stable forms may dwell, gazed on the husband of her youth with anguish none may paint or tell. And men whose sole crime was their hue the impress of their maker's hand, and frail and shrinking children too were gathered in that mournful band. Ye who have laid your love to rest and wept above their lifeless clay, know not the anguish of that breast those loved are rudely torn away. Ye may not know how desolate are bosoms rudely forced apart, and how dull and heavy weight will press the life drops from the heart. These words express why we're so resistant to slavery. It's an emotional, temporal, historical. It's, as Americans, we would argue that we resist slavery on every level. From the time we're born, we are confronted with the demand to make something of ourselves, to be someone, to be somebody. We think of self as defined, uh, who we really are, our career, Uh, our economic status. We think of ourself as uh, security. We want all the things that money can buy. Self must be to the American unrestrained. Self must be granted freedom to act, freedom to become successful. And we believe that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and our God-given rights, and since the Declaration of Independence itself claims to be that we're created equal, then slavery itself becomes an indictment on our individuality. So when we are confronted with the idea of slavery, we are preconditioned to dig in our hills and to resist both the concept and the fact that Scripture doesn't seem to repudiate the idea, but it just talks around it. It just states it, and it keeps going forward. 
However, the fact of the matter is that servants and slaves by far were the greatest number of people in the early church. Did you know that? By far the greatest number of people in the early church were slaves and servants. In the Roman Empire at the time of this writing, they were as many as 60 million slaves. 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Slavery originally began through Roman conquest, slaves being taken as prisoners of war and then put into positions created to free the citizens from doing the work that they believed that didn't highlight their uh, positions as conquerors. And yet, listen to this, in Rome, a slave could be a doctor, a teacher, a musician, an actor, a secretary, etc., The distinction between free person and slave was very, very blurred in the early church. For instance, in Roman society, a slave was not distinguishable from a citizen by their color, their dress, or speech, and a slave could occupy a more responsible position than a poor citizen. Think of this. A financial, from a financial standpoint, the average free laborer in Rome was no better, fared no better than a slave. What does that mean? Working six days a week, such a man could earn a wage of one denarius, which is like what it says in Matthew 20, uh, verse 2, or about 313 denarii a year, which some 280 or so would be spent on the necessities of food, clothing, and shelter. However, a slave could receive these basic necessities free of charge and might expect five denarii a month in addition. So some slaves would be better off financially 27 denarii, roughly a month's salary, than those who were citizens. This is a different kind of slavery that the Bible's talking about. They were not allowed to marry, true, but they did cohabitate. If they did, their children were then belonging to not themselves, but their owners. Uh, Many slaves were loved and trusted members of the owner's family, but regardless of it, all the fact remains that a slave was not a person to Rome, but a thing, a thing. They had absolutely no legal rights whatsoever. In fact, we see this even in Aristotle. Aristotle writes this, there can be no friendship, no justice towards inanimate things. Indeed, not even towards a horse or an ox, nor yet towards a slave as a slave. For a master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool just as a tool is an inanimate slave. Yet Rome and Greece... They had different way of life. They thought of things differently when it was anchored in the economic reality of slave support. Not to go too far into this, but I think it's a good point. One writer writes, central features that distinguish first century slavery from later practice in the new world are following. Racial factors played no role. Education was greatly encouraged. Some slaves were better educated than their owners. An enhanced slave's value Uh, was because of that. Many slaves carried out sensitive and highly responsible social functions. Slaves could own property, including other slaves. Their religious and cultural traditions were the same as those of the freeborn. No laws prohibited public assembly of slaves, and they could legitimately anticipate being emancipated by the age of 30. That was slavery in the early church. So it's vital, and I put that out there before you, that we understand slavery was a normal, accepted way of life and essential component of the home. They were were home slaves. This is who he's speaking of. And in fact, Plato, Aristotle, Seneca, all others who wrote about about these proper relationships existed within the household because between slaves and masters, husbands and wives, children and parents, because they believed that the home, 
think about this in contradistinction between American society today, that the home was divinely ordained to construct strong, orderly society. In fact, the reason that slaves were so accepted because it was a part of the home. The home was where the merits of all people were judged, especially in light of what was best for Rome. And religions were introduced into the empire by foreigners were judged in large part whether or not they were complementary to the idea of the home. So to disengage Christians from slavery, listen, would be to disengage them from their opportunity to live the gospel out before others. That is what is very, very important to understand because slaves desire freedom. Runaway slaves were a massive problem in the late Republic during the civil wars of Augustine, uh, excuse me, Augustus, returned 30,000 runaway slaves to their masters for punishment, ranging from crucifixion to branding their forehead with the letter F for fugitive. But the way of Christ introduced a new kind of freedom, a new kind that came from being free from sin's condemnation, and therefore the Christian slave was to remain a slave. The Christian slave was to remain a slave, and I don't have time to get into it, but you know the whole letter of Philemon and what that was all about. You know, if Christianity was all about social reform, think about it real quick, then this should shock us. But Christianity has never been about social reform. The Christian gospel is about a new kind of freedom based on a new kind of master. And historically, these believers were slaves of men, but contextually, now, verse 16, they are bond slaves of God. And so that becomes our key point of resistance, and I just want to break that down for you. The key point of our resistance, when all is said and done, our objections to slavery is not so much because of the physical, societal kind of connotations of that, though it does bring that, for sure. It's because our own objection comes because we fail to view ourselves already as slaves of God. You and I, many times, and I think this is what Paul was referring to in not so many different words, that we don't see ourselves rightly before the king. We don't see ourselves as the slaves of Christ already. And because we don't see that, we resist any kind of idea that Scripture might bring when it speaks to these areas. If we knew ourselves to be slaves already, and if we knew ourselves to be slaves to our Creator who always gives good and never evil, and if we comprehend the fact that we are now free from the penalty of hell, that we are free from the penalty of the power of sin, then any physical, temporal idea of slavery would become more palatable to us. We must first and foremost, if we are to ever have joy, we have to stop resisting the idea of slavery because we are slaves already if we belong to Christ. This is the Christian view of self. The Christian view of self that our salvation doesn't grant us earthly deliverance, but a spiritual deliverance. And that regardless of your vocation, whatever you have this morning, no matter where you work or what you do, regardless of your career this morning, regardless of your calling, deep down inside, you are a slave, a slave to God. That has to be the first and foremost way that we view ourselves. You cannot go to work. You cannot deal with customers. You cannot wait on people, fight the alarm clock of of, of their daily life. Deep down inside, if you have not come to terms with the fact that you are a slave already in your most essential self, you're either a slave to righteousness or you're a slave to sin. And you do not resist the idea of slavery in its biblical sense because you yourself are no longer a slave of sin, but a slave towards God. So this is essential. If we're going to resist, if we're going to overcome this resistance, we have to first and foremost see that we've got to get over this definition of slavery, number one. Number two. 
we also resist another aspect of this teaching, not only the definition of slavery, but number two, the delight of submission. We must not only get over the definition of slavery, but the duty of submission. Now, this is a whole other area. Peter is calling for us in this section to submit. And before he even brings up the qualifications for that submission, we want to rebel against it as soon as you just say that. Uh, submit to your employers. Whoa, 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 whoa. You don't know my employer. Uh, submit. Sorry, I know this is a tough teaching. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, you're so faithful. I'm sorry, Jim. <laughs> but it does kind of get us the wrong way. It rubs us the wrong way. When Peter tells us that a Christian slave must submit even to those masters that are crooked and perverse, we begin to think that Christianity is very difficult, very difficult to think of, even perhaps irrelevant to the view of life that we have as an American in our philosophy. I found a study, and I think it was pretty interesting. <laughs> Everybody's leaving now. It was, a pretty, it was a pretty good study. I get it. I get it. I'll call you later. Uh, uh, there was a study done, and I think it's an interesting one, about concerning college employment, and I thought it was very telling, and some of you will fully relate to this. Um, this was done by Jim Cremier, Director of Human Resources at the Great River Health Systems, and he says, we hire these young people, and then they don't come to work, and they don't see a problem with being absent, and when they do come, they seem to care about what it is that we, when they can leave work. Within one month, half of those hired and terminated were recent high school graduates for whom was their first full-time job. Yet at the same time, a sense of entitlement prevailed. Kids want to get that top job right away, the nice air-conditioned office with the computer, never mind that the way managers achieve those jobs is by starting at the bottom and working their way up. Uh, young people come to apply for a job in cut-off jeans. They have no understanding of how to act in an interview, no presentation skills, and a total lack of understanding the impression they're making on the employer. Instead, the attitude is, hey, take me for what I am. I am an individual, and that's what matters most. I know, it's funny, because you hire people. Yes. I was just off the phone before I came in to uh, join airs with a, a woman who I know it actually fits into this very, very well, and she was working with a student who uh, has uh, collapsed on his work with her. He has not shown up. And she said when she reviewed his um, hireability, because she was thinking about hiring him to work at the studio, that he had been uh, a no-show at every single job he's ever been on. Uh, This is the the cry of the postmodern individualist, the one who has been raised to believe that they have been endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, which include not surrendering their ill-conceived notion of personal celebration for anybody, anywhere. I am the focus of my life. But Peter here is very specific in his demands. Look at that again. Be submissive to your masters with all respect, good and gentle, and to the unreasonable as well. That's usually where you stop reading. There are portions of Scripture that produce a double-edged response from us and when we read them, and what it does is it reveals about our own soul something very important. Our initial reaction to this is to say, this isn't fair. This isn't fair. It's ridiculous. It's insane. No earthly tyrant can be allowed to do whatever they want to you. Is Christianity a religion for wimps, a faith of the gutless? come on, I'd rather be a man and defy this teaching to become a doormat and comply with it. This is our initial reaction. 
And yet the very moment, listen, that those words are being formed in your mouth, the very moment that you're thinking those thoughts, there is a second, even more deeply resounding thought that's backing up our, our motive, and that is, yet, even as I speak, the words that are here sound like Christ. They sound like Christ to me. These thoughts echo what my Lord has said elsewhere, and so I am guessing that that's the Spirit of God within me pointing to the fact that this is his will for me. This sounds like Christ to me, though my flesh hates it, and my pride is screaming for justice, something tells me deep inside that this is the way of the Savior. You see, the first thought is resounding to our feelings of society, our logic, equality. But left to itself, it becomes a nail in our coffin, the coffin of assurance, and fastens tightly our resolve to sin against what God has revealed. But if you can move past that first thought, that first initial reaction, and if you can grasp something of the beauty of Christ in these commands that God has revealed these things to us for our good, if we can move past that first thought, then the beauty of Christ comes and we are bathed no longer in ridicule and scorn, but somehow we see that we must be like him. So submission to our earthly masters, our submission to them pictures our submission to our heavenly master, and that can be a very telling portrait to us. Go to Ephesians 6 just to see it. Sometimes I will just quote it, but I think it's helpful just to be reminded of it. Ephesians 6, verse 5, just to see that this is also quoted in different places of Scripture as well. This is not just in 1 Peter itself. Paul says, the Apostle Paul, speaking of family, speaking of fathers, eventually in verse 5 he gets to slaves, and he says, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And then he speaks to the masters, and masters do the same things to them, or give up threatening, knowing that both the master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Go to Colossians, book over. Look at verse 3, chapter 3, excuse me, starting in verse 22. Ephesians and Colossians are very, very similar many times, and they kind of picture the same ideas almost in the same way. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your earthly, mere masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. The ideas are consistent, obviously, now back to 1 Peter 2. The way we respond to those who are earthly masters must reflect who it is that we believe is our heavenly master. Because the way we respond to earthly masters shows that we are already slaves of Christ. This is very much to the heart of me, and I say this because these very verses have been very fundamental in how I have like grown as a Christian all these years. When I first came to Christ, I was so full of zeal. Uh, without knowledge. I was very, very headstrong, uh, very sure of myself and my new faith. There's a lot of reasons for that, but um, that arrogance caused me to drive my employer 
to the point where she laid me off for six months. So I'm a brand new Christian. Um, I'm fired instantly because I just didn't like having a woman boss. <laughs> and I uh, thought, oh, this is biblical. I don't have to be under a woman. And um, it was just so romantic to think what I was doing. I was suffering for God, you know. Look at this. I'm doing the right thing. I, when in truth, uh, verse 20 of this text tells us, I was just merely enduring with patience being harshly treated after I had sinned. I wasn't, this wasn't any, some glorious thing that happened to me. I had not been um, taken out of work because I was you know, standing for Christ. The issue was my submission or lack of to follow the rules, to do it from all my heart, all I was asked to do. And I was just prideful and I was blind and I was resistant. And ironically, after looking for work everywhere for six months and having no work, and doing jobs. I couldn't even do jobs. I remember working on a car, and a guy said, I'll pay you 20 bucks to work on the car, but I have to report it because now I'm a Christian, so what's the point? It keeps you out of work. I did it anyway. Uh, Ironically, for looking for work everywhere, I was asked to come back to that same employer to start the process over again, and yet there was a condition. I was not allowed to come back to work unless I went into therapy for my... uh, my wrongdoing. I was stuck. I really wanted to get a job again, but I wasn't going to do therapy because here at Grace Community Church, and actually I should say the Bible, uh, that's a godless system. Uh, so I came to Carrie Hardy, who was here, and said, Carrie, uh, my, my employers tell me I, I got to go to therapy or I can't get back to work. And he said, uh, well, would it be okay if the person had a, a license, a family you know, license and in, in, therapy, but they were really biblical counselors, like they went through school. And she, I go, I think so, I hope. And so I asked my boss, and she said, yes, I'll take that. I go, okay, great. Um, so I could meet my uh, employer's demands and at the same time do it biblically. Well, it was not about my employer's demands. It was about my personal perspective concerning the necessity of what I thought I needed to do that was really you know, a glaring issue in my life. Um, I will just go to say Elwood Hale, who no longer is here. He's in heaven. Uh, he was an older man, about 70 years old, when I was meeting with him. And I went there. Um, she said, you got to do it for six months, or excuse me, six weeks. And I went, and I started to learn from him and learn from him every Monday. And this is where he had me park, right here, 1 Peter chapter 2, in the verses that we see here, in verses 18 through 20. That's what he went over and over and over with me. I resisted until finally this gentle, kind, loving man, who some of you may know, uh, drove into my heart a brand new awareness of the fact that I was totally wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong in the way I was thinking. I was wrong in the way that I had treated my employer. And I went back to my employer, and I said, um, I'm done with the six weeks. And she said, good. She goes, I've seen so much change in you. I've seen so much drastic change in you. Um, you don't have to go to your therapist anymore. And I said, no, I still want to go. I, I actually met with him for two years, every Monday for two years, learning to walk the way of Jesus, learning to understand this idea of submission, learning to walk with him. My time is almost done, and I'm just going to jump to the end here. I will just tell you, this is the greatest part of the story. I have so much more, but that's okay. Um, a year after that, I was working with her, thinking about even if they're unreasonable, even if they're perverse, 
And my employer had a health issue, and she was scared. And she believed that she was going to die. And so she had seen such a change in me. She, she, actually, she actually used to wear a Star of David and a cross. And I asked her one time, how come you wear both the Star of David and a cross? And she said, just in case. <laughs> just to be sure, you know. But she was Jewish. And um, I prayed with her. I prayed for her life, for her soul, for her health. And by God's grace, uh, it was not medically proven that she actually did have a life-threatening illness, and she came to Christ. And she's been a believer ever since then, and it has been, she tells everybody all the time. In fact, I'll just tell you right now, because she just texted me before. I didn't, I didn't know. She didn't know I'm going to preach on this. She said, uh, my hope is that you're blessed with your families, blessed, and that all we do is what Jesus would want us to do every day. Wish I could hear you preach. So we won't tell her about this because it's all about her. Um, There is a delight, and that would be my last point here. There is a delight in this favor of God, and it comes from doing the the will of God and being and patiently waiting for God's hand to bless. I will just tell you the end of the story again, and that is just simply this. I am very, very thankful, though it hasn't been easy, and it was very, very difficult to humble myself to be able to learn that my job in life was to reflect Christ, show Christ, speak of Christ, if there ever was an opportunity to share Christ. But my, my issue was not about my submission. My issue was I needed to submit to Scripture no matter what it said. And what it said here was, you will have unreasonable people in your life. You will have unreasonable um, parents in your life. You'll have unreasonable bosses in your life. But if you just keep your heart right before God and you start to remember that even, as you're going to see next time we teach, verse 21, you have been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, that you will be blessed. And sometimes even the gospel comes to people just through your example. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the amount of time that we did have. And I just pray, God, that you would... Use this portion of Scripture in the lives of all the people here who have a heart to hear and that they would be challenged by it. It goes against us, Lord, you know this. It goes against our radical self-image of who we think we are and our own built-up importance. But Father, you really know who we are. We're slaves of you. We want to be like Christ. We want to please you with our lives. We don't want to stand for ourselves and stand alone. We want to stand for you and for what you have done. Give us grace in all these things, I pray in Christ's precious name. Amen.